1 Samuel chapter 23 this evening. Hardship without bitterness seems to be a dominant theme that comes out of this chapter. There was nothing David could do to free himself from being hunted by this King Saul. As much as he prayed, as righteously as he lived, as what would become Psalms of the Bible, as many as he wrote into Scripture, still nothing could stop Saul from coming after him. Uh, Life is this way sometimes. There are things that just will not let us go. Uh, There were things that he could do to make the situation worse, and there were things that he could do to make the situation better. He opted to do for the better. There were things he could do for others. And this is significant to the, to the theme this evening, the hardship without bitterness, because he certainly had hardship, and yet he still looks out for other people. So much so that 200 more individuals will join him in this chapter. God is molding him into the leader he wants him to be. Throughout these hardships, David, we we get no indication that David grew bitter towards God for allowing Saul to hunt him, nor anyone else. In fact, he doesn't really even get bitter towards Saul. So we look now at verse 1. Then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Only a few miles Keilah was from David's current hideout. And uh, they're going to be helped by David, of course. Saul has terrorized them. and They're going to turn on David. They will trade their lives for David's life. You have to ask yourself, what would you do in this situation, knowing the history of Saul, that he massacred the priest without hesitation, the slaughter of the priest, and the village of the priest, the women, the children, the men. They knew they would be next. He wouldn't hesitate to come after them. This was the Israel that Saul had colored in darkness. He says here, they are robbing the threshing floors of Keilah, the threshing floors, of course, where they would take the harvest, the grain, and they would thrash it and take the, separate the kernel from the husk. These were David's people. And he could not ignore this. He could not ignore that the Philistines were attacking his people, taking their food from from them. Keilah is a type of our spiritual hope that gets from time to time invaded and robbed by a carnal nature or some other enemy of innocence, taking what is ours to satisfy itself. Uh, maybe you have a problem with, for example, uh, anger. And you get in the spirit and, you know, the anger comes along and it robs you of the harvest, of all that you've been working for. Maybe it's something else. But I see in this first verse a parallel between events in, in my own life as a believer and, of course, in the historical record before us. Uh, when we are being robbed like this, We tend to feel like we are being cheated. We are. That's why we're being robbed. And we find ourselves questioning God's goodness. 
We want what the other people have. Other villages weren't getting robbed, but this one was. We were entitled to good health and a good marriage, to a good job. Uh, not only to see others with them, but to have them ourselves. But life does not always work out that way. And so David, he saw the people in need. And instead of being bitter against God for that too, he prayed. What could he do for others? And he's going to jump into action. Well, if I can't deliver myself, maybe I can deliver somebody else. Quite a noble characteristic. I don't know that he even put that much thought into it. He heard that his people were being attacked by the Philistines. He knew what, what he had to do. But he did not know if he was permitted to do it by God. And that is a big lesson from this evening's message. Message from the scripture. Verse 2. Therefore David inquired of Yahweh saying, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? And Yahweh said to David, Go and attack the Philistines. Save Keilah. David made habit of seeking God was not a one-time event. Saul didn't really get into this much because God wouldn't do what he wanted him to do fast enough or well enough. Two unique ways David could seek the Lord at this time. He had the prophet Gad with him, and he also had Abiathar, the priest, who had the ephod. And within the ephod, of course, were the Urim and the Thummim, which they would Seek God, and David's going to avail himself of this. It says here in verse 2, uh, David speaking, saying, Shall I go attack these Philistines? He's not leaning on his own understanding. We know the verse very well. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Not easy to do when the pressure's on. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he shall direct your paths be a lot of squirming. <laughs> could be a lot of squirming waiting for God to tell you which path to take. David, of course, having sought the Lord, uh, is better off, but he still has to slug it out. He still has to engage the Philistines. That's how life is. You seek God and you're better able to slug it out. He's going to cross swords. New Testament says it this way in one space, Romans 8, 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Well, that should be very, it should be obvious, but it is not. If you follow God, you're going to be led by God. You're going to submit, he's the Lord, he's the shepherd, he goes ahead of the flock, and, and we follow him. Uh, those who do not have the Lord as Lord, they're not led by him, they're not sons of God. Now, being led is not synonymous with being heartache-free. For Paul, it was the other way around. He was led into danger. The Lord, of course, led to the cross. Needs of others, they're not always, they're, they're calling often. But for whom? And for what? Maybe it's not yours. Just because somebody has a need doesn't mean it's for you to go ahead and try to meet it. And then on the other hand, there could be a situation where it would be gross negligence of you to do nothing. How do you know the difference? You have to seek the Lord. Make it a habit of life. David sees the need, but he goes to God. He doesn't just say, hey, they're attacking. Those are the Philistines. They don't belong in the land. These are our people. Let's go get them. What a lesson. He goes to God. And it doesn't go just once. 
Before he takes matters into his hands, he gets direction. And he feels that God is going to answer him. He feels that he should help, but that's not enough. And Yahweh said to David, verse 2, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. Ironically, David is the one behaving as a king. Whereas Saul, he is behaving as an outlaw against God because he is an outlaw against God. Unlike Saul in chapter 14 where Saul dismissed the priest. I can't wait, got to do things. David gets his answer from God. God had stopped answering Saul because of that little stunt that he pulled. But he gets permission to help others who would turn on him. God knows this. David, he's probably, he's probably not going to be surprised when he finds out that they are going to turn on him. So not only can God be long-suffering, he calls us to be long-suffering. Yeah, patience is, you know, for the sake of this point I'm making, patience is with time and things and events. Long-suffering is with people. I find it very difficult to put up with someone internally, not externally always, but when I know I'm right on a critical point, I know I'm right, and they are wrong, and they don't see it, and they don't mind continuing to make a mess doing it the wrong way. I struggle internally. It's like, God, can I just, like, elkabong them one time and force them to see it my way? No, it's never been yes. Yeah, Imagine, maybe that's what heaven's going to have a little bit. You can go ahead and clunk people if you really think you're right and they're wrong. I'm glad you laugh, but long-suffering, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Yeah, Christian love is not easy. Joy, Christian joy is not easy to hold on to. Peace, somebody will always come and attack it, no matter what. Even if it could just be an insect that will mess up the peace. Long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. You know which one stands out to me the most that I see lacks very often in Christian people? Kindness. Just simple kindness. Colossians 3.12, Therefore, as the elect of God, Paul is saying, therefore, because God has chosen you, when you accepted Christ, you became his. He says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. And so David gets permission to help those who will turn on him, and he is going to be long-suffering towards them for it. He is not going to hold a grudge against them for that. And he's going to be turned on twice in this chapter alone. Verse 3. But David's men said to him, Look, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? He's got 400 men at this point, six in a minute. But he says, they say to him, We're running from Saul with just a, you know, his battalion regiment coming after you this is an army of the philistines and these people hate us we're not going to get any mercy i don't think we can take them there is wisdom in the counsel of many but there is not wisdom in the counsel of any uh you know, some some folks you don't want their supposed wisdom proverbs fifteen twenty two. without counsel plans go awry but in the multitude of counselors 
they are established if they are good counselors. There's a caveat that belongs to that. Solomon would say, well, of course they got to be smart. They can't be big dummies. You don't want their counsel. Depart from the presence of a foolish man when you do not detect in him the righteous spirit. Ultimately, leaders have to decide. Counsel serves command. Command does not serve counsel. And if the both sides understand that, you have a well, you have a rhythm, a well-running machine. It should even be that way in the home. Uh, yet they, these men had not yet fully come to trust David. They knew he was better than Saul, but was he making the right decision? <laughs> you know, anything goes wrong, the leader gets, you must have done something. That's, that's how it is. And we're going to see that. They're going to rebel against him later. And they're going to do that very thing. David takes them, you know, off to Gath, and they come back, and their camp is, is, is gone. Their women, their children, gone. And they wanted to kill David for that. They didn't mind when they set out on their journey, did they? Well, that's how it is. 1 Corinthians 2. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You've got to be in touch with the Spirit to identify him, to recognize that he is working. Verse 4 now, Then David inquired of Yahweh once again. And Yahweh answered him and said, Arise, go to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. So he goes back for confirmation. He's challenged. And and instead of getting, you know what? I'm the leader. You came to follow me. This is what we're doing. Which he could have done. He goes back to God. And he returns for confirmation. He's not rebuked by God, nor was Gideon. When Gideon went, okay, one more thing, Lord. Let's do it this way now. Uh, God does not rebuke Gideon for that. And he doesn't rebuke us. However, David does not go back ten times. There's still a limit on how much we can uh, get away with. Abraham, you know, God finally had to say, okay, Abraham, that's it. Ten people, that's it. No more of this discussion. But what did God get from that? In front of all of us, here you have a righteous man praying for slobs, for unrighteous people that are about to come under the judgment of God. And we walk away saying, I don't, I don't do that. I pray for the fire and brimstone. And uh, here's... Abraham interceding on their behalf, and they don't even know it. They went to their graves not knowing a righteous man was praying for them. David acted and did not ask again. Verse 5, And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. So there it is. Uh, This was a large campaign, evidently. The Philistines came with supplies. They came with livestock, feed and supply their troops. So this was not a small campaign. And uh, as I mentioned, they had to slug it out with them. Uh, God could have, you know, just sent a plague, but uh, he sent the sword of David. And this was God's way of delivering his people from the Philistines. Also, firmly planting David's leadership in, the, in his camp, his own camp, the men would say, this is the man to follow. Again, they, they, they mean it, they're sincere, they're going to love David, but there are going to be times where they're going to give him a hard, a difficult way to go. But not only does he deliver uh, the people of Keilah and establish David's name, 
but they replenish their supplies, which is critical. It is vital. You've got to have food. So David, it says here in verse 5, saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Then why won't God save David from Saul? Long-suffering, patience, endurance, perseverance. Uh, the, we reach a point where logic doesn't, it doesn't apply here. Your philosophies, your theology, the only part of your theology that will work sometimes is trust God. And everything else has to take a second seat to that in that moment. It will revive, but for the, for the moment, it will be by faith we are carried. David's obedience is not dependent on his rescue from Saul. David does not save Keilah and say, Okay, Lord, now, as reward, or why can't you just, you know, bump Saul off? Or just have him stop chasing me? Uh, you know, there's a lot of illnesses you can give him that would keep him away. But again, it's not conditional. David's obedience was not dependent on God rescuing him from anything. He was, he's God all by himself, and, and that's enough. And we learn from that. God, I don't serve you by what, because of what you do for me. I serve you because of who you are. And that you do things are, for me is, is bonus. Is this life worth it sometimes? You know, you stick around long enough, or some, some go through it early. Is it worth it? And God says in Romans, yeah, it's very worth it. You can't even calculate how worth it's going to be. When you get to heaven, you're going to be like, wow, I can't believe this. Um, but it will be real. Verse 6, now it happened when Abiathar, the son of Abimelech, Ahimelech, sorry, there is an Abimelech, but that's not him. This is Ahimelech. <laughs> the son of Ahimelech fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. So the historian now is, is just taking us back to the last chapter. And he's saying, David sought God. Let me tell you how he did it. Now he's, he, And this is throughout their style of scripture, and it often causes just a tremendous amount of work sometimes. Uh, but he's referencing events from the last chapter when Abiathar escaped the slaughter of the priests and took with him the ephod. And the ephod essentially was a vest, but the breastplate that went with it had the pouch, and that went with the ephod, and they collectively uh, make up the ephod. And in that pouch on the breastplate that was over the heart was the urim and the thummim, which evidently were some sort of um, stone uh, that uh, the lights and the perfection that would indicate uh, if God was blackballing something or whiteballing something, a yes or a no. They did not preserve for us the details. Exodus 28, verse 30, And you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart. We pause there. That's a big part. It's intentional. He doesn't say put it over his chest. He put it over his heart, the bosom. It is a meaningful statement uh, when he goes in before Yahweh. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before Yahweh continually. It's a very beautiful picture, but I'm sure uh, Aaron had his struggles carrying out his ministry because all ministry has struggles or uh, otherwise it's not ministry. Verse, I mean, I would like a ministry on the beach of Maui where I just... 
meals paid, room and board, place of my choice, and we could just call it ministry. But, it, of course, it, it doesn't work that way. Verse 7, uh, Saul was told, and Saul was told, that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. So Saul is familiar with Keilah. Perhaps maybe he was briefed. Perhaps not. It doesn't matter. He is completely spiritually delusional. He's gone to the point of he is irretrievable. If he were still alive in our time, we could not say he was irretrievable. But the case is closed with him, and we know how it ends. And he is irretrievable. He's not coming back. He's not going to have an epiphany where he says, Wait a minute, what am I doing chasing this man of God? God is not only not with him, God is against him. And for him to say, God has delivered him him into my hand, is delusional. He's out of his mind. Especially after the slaughter of 85 priests and the village with women and children, as mentioned before. He is demonic and out of his head. And it's his fault. Beware feeling sorry for someone who is elected to be evil. It happens. Again, I, last session I read to you Paul saying, I've turned them over to Satan. That's pretty powerful. And he's a Christian. I don't know Christians could do that. Well, the problem is we get Christians doing it to other Christians when they don't like you know, how they, what church they go to. I've turned you over to Satan. Like, well, I've never heard of anybody actually doing that, but I've had my suspicions. Verse 8. And Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. What about the Philistines? Why didn't you rally to fight them? Aren't you the king? You you call an army together. Are you kidding me? This man is insane. Again, where was Saul when the Philistines were robbing the people? He could care less about them. The universe revolved around Saul, according to Saul. Only when David, righteous David, shows up to help the people does Saul rise up to hunt David. He's the center of the universe. And because of this, everything he touches dies. Everything he touches goes bad. You know, the phrase a narcissist, a person that is so in love with themselves that they become a problem to everybody else. That's Saul. This is his 13th attempt, depending on, again, how you count the attempts. This is at least the 13th. Verse 9. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. So again, he's, he's consulting God. He's seeking the Lord. This is what he does. He has the ephod. The question is, we are a royal priesthood. As Christians, do we have the ephod of God on our heart, on our chest, as the breastplate? Do we pray? Do we consult God? Is my heart covered in God's things, in His direction? The Holy Spirit has become our ephod in that sense. Zechariah the prophet said, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Rebuilding will come, not by might, Not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so David avails himself of the ephod as we avail ourselves of prayer. You know, I I pray primarily for two reasons. One, I'm commanded to. 
Two, I can't stop. How do you stop talking to God if you're born again? How, how do you do I don't know how to do that. Even when I'm really upset with what he allows or disallows or his inactions or just what's going on, I still have to talk to him reverently. Um, it's a mark of a believer is to talk to God according to Scripture. And no one else like that. We pray to no one else, the Godhead, and that's it. In verse 10, then David said, O Yahweh, God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Yahweh, God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And Yahweh said he will come down. <laughs> he said, but that's more than one question, David. <laughs> He's not succumbed to fatalism which would then produce bitterness. And the hardship he has without bitterness. And this is what the lessons are for. This is why we're reading about the life of David and not Joab. <laughs> Joab just is a whole other character. Saul is the problem, and he's got thousands of people helping him push that problem forward. Uh, David knows that he is innocent before Saul, that he doesn't deserve this. And he knows that the people are, are going to save themselves. Can you blame them? Who can blame them? I mean, I would have given Saul, David a heads up. But when you're terrorized, when you're terrorized, you don't, you're afraid to do anything. That would uh, be, be offend the uh, person that's terrorizing you. And that's, this is the case with the people of Ziph and the people of Keilah. They're afraid that any hint to Saul will bring down bloodshed on them. So they ain't saying anything to David. I, they probably didn't just nodded when he left, didn't even say thank you. Verse 12, uh, I don't know that for sure. Just threw that in. Then David said, verse 12, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And Yahweh said, They will deliver you. As I mentioned, who can blame? What choice did they have? David is... Okay, so that's the, the people of Keilah. They're doing the logical thing. Uh, and if they don't, they're going to get slaughtered. David knows that, and so he, he's leaving without any, you know, he's got that long suffering going on with them. But still, he's got feelings of being betrayed. It's still, this is not right. This is an injustice. This is not how it should be. And even though he's got a few hundred people with him, he's going to feel like he's all alone. Because he's at the top. The only place he can go is to God. And, and God, you know, he doesn't just show up, you know, when you, when you summons him. And Paul was this way. He just plodded forward. Paul knew what he had to do and he just kept doing it over and over again. And he never saw the persecution. Second Timothy, he said, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. See the long-suffering? I would like to insert myself there and say, okay, I would say the same thing if I really felt I was right and they agreed. But if they disagreed with me, would I, would I be so magnanimous? Would I be so noble and long-suffering? Well, I look back over the years, and yes is the answer, but I'm always shaky about the future. Am I going to be able to pull that off again? Of course, I don't walk around wringing my fingers thinking that, but I'm at the same time never going, when I get it right, I'm not going to say, yeah, man, I know how to do it. I 
just try to just stay focused on the Lord. Keep it simple. Paul says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. So that's his story on this episode. But there was another one where Paul said we wanted to die. We despaired of life. It was that bad. He just makes that comment and he moves forward. That's Paul's style. He doesn't wallow in things. And so, God speaking to David, directing David, uh, relieving him from this event. He says, move on with the people under your care. Verse 13 so David and his men, about 600, now there is, there's the note. It was 400, now there is just 600. Arose and departed from Keala and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keala, so he halted the expedition. Um... Uh, we don't even know, always know why God allows this or that. We may never know. That's all right. We know what our instructions are. Awful situation that this is. And yet David's followers are growing. Saul says at the bottom of verse 13, well, it says that he halted the expedition. He says, what? Never mind. There's no righteous man to kill. Let's all go back home. Uh, he's just a complete fool. Out of his head. Could you just see his face as he's just plodding down on his horse, going back to sit under a tree with a spear in his hand? It's just uh, the face of evil. I don't know that an artist can easily capture that. Verse 14. And David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hands. So remember, I mentioned when you're counting how many times Saul, we were up to 13. Well, what's the every day do? Uh, how many times is that? Uh, of course, we're not told, so we'll just keep counting the verse 15 as the 14th episode, leaving out the others. He's uh, just obsessed with He lives to murder David. That's his whole purpose in life. A stronghold... Uh, of course, natural fortification. He's moved from the stronghold, which may have been Masada, uh, the fortress of Herath, the wilderness of Ziph. He's, he's got other wilderness. There are wilderness stops waiting for David. Uh, he's just the wilderness man. Um, the terrain just lended to uh, made, made, it, made it difficult for Saul to corner him in. Of course, at Keilah, Saul was hoping he was going to box him in, put the city under siege, and just you know, say, send David out, or I kill everybody. And they would have sent David out. Verse 15, so David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest, number 14. Could you imagine being stalked by one person with an army, and you can just count how many times they've tried to kill you? It's maddening. Verse 16, then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. What a friend. This is a friend. How do I be a friend, Lord? Look at a man like Jonathan who risked his life to go and strengthen a friend in God. Not just give him a pep talk. He's going to, it's recorded what he said. To be a friend when it counts. I mean, anybody can be a friend on a sunny day. 
the sunny days of life. But what about when it counts? What about when everybody's against you? Um, can you still be a friend? Can you hold true and not blame them? Well, you must have done something. As Saul's friends, uh, not Saul's, Job's, they were, <laughs> they did not come to strengthen his hand in God. They came to chop him up and make themselves feel good about doing it. And there's no shortage of people like this. A lot of friends will abandon you when you're down. They just will abandon you. Some will kick you when you're down, but others will just leave you. This is the last recorded meeting between these two friends, verse 17. And here's how he strengthened him. He said to him, do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. David, I'm sure, struggled to believe this. Because when you're in David's position and your life is, you know, unraveling, you have a hard time sometimes receiving such a, an, an encouragement when you've already received 80 of them already and they've not worked. You're still being chased. But there are other witnesses to this. Samuel and Jonathan has, has said... All Israel knew this. Abigail will come along and, and mention it. Saul even knows it. And Jonathan said, my father knows this. One of the reasons why he hates you. He knows God has given you the throne because you are worthy and he is not. Instead of submitting to God and just going retiring somewhere because he's well off, he'll be fine. No, he just wants to kill you and anybody involved. First Samuel 27, this got to David. This wasn't enough. This is later now. And David said in his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines and Saul will despair of me, seek me, any, to not seek me anymore in the, in the part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. My point is, here's Jonathan encouraging him and, and David is receiving the encourage, but he's on that roller coaster that we get on when life is really beating us up. And the day will come where he's just, he's going to get me. I'm going to just go to the enemy again. It didn't work the last time. He's desperate. It caused problems. It did not work the second time either. Jonathan says, you shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. And because of Jonathan's father Saul, of course, this would never happen. It could have happened. But it did not happen. How many times did David reflect on these? David preserved this for us. The historian gets hold of it. How many times did he reflect on the words of his dearest friend? You know how hard it is in life to have someone this close of a friend? It just kind of happens. You, you cannot put an ad in the paper. Will somebody be a good friend? And David... When he was crowned king, did he not reflect on this? Did he not think about this from time to time? I believe he did. How could he not? He says, even my father knows this. And uh, it was public knowledge by this time. Uh, Saul hated what God wanted. And um, his actions make that clear. Verse 18, so the two of them made a covenant before Yahweh. And David stayed in the woods and Jonathan went to his own house. This covenant is a loyalty love covenant. David, I will always be loyal to you. Jonathan, I will always be loyal to you. They would never harm each other. 
This is the kind of friendship. This is why their friendship was so, in another class, the, the common friendships. They would never harm each other. Is there anybody in your life that you can say, that person will never harm me? I mean, if I come at him with a machete, he might. He might. But just as, without that, is there, it's a gift. And a lot of people, they say it, but when the pressure's on, they do harm you. They're not there. They do abandon you. And so it, uh, it is not a, it's sort of a heartfelt contract to protect each other, to not violate each other. This is the third covenant they made. Verse 19, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds in the woods? In the hill of Hakaliah, you got it right there. Hakaliah, which is on the south side of Jeshimon. This, uh, the way they ask these questions, I hate riddles. <laughs> is David not hiding? Is this a riddle? Is he hiding or not? Why don't you say David is hiding? Anyway, the people are terrorized again, the Ziphites. They know uh, that Saul will kill him, so they initiate. Contact with Saul, say, he's with us, come get him. David now a lightning rod uh, for Saul's wrath, and uh, it's a trend. <laughs> Sweeping through the land. Uh, let's get David. Um, this man, David, rather than getting depressed, now I know some, many people think the only people that can talk about depression are psychologists, because everybody else, the pastors that don't believe in psychology are insensitive and archaic and cold-hearted which is a flat-out lie. Uh, many Christians get un- become uncomfortable when you call a psychologist out on what they are. Uh, and there are fields, of different fields of psychology should point it out that there are, there are those fields that are valid fields. But when it comes to behavior, how you should live your life, your morals, your responses, your replies, your moods, this is God's work. Hosea chapter 5 Verse 11, Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. Now, I'm not even quoting 2 Peter 1.3 and Colossians 2.8 and 9. Uh, Ephesians, I mean, it's just, we are God's workmanship. Uh, my point is not to, at, at the moment, attack those who I find attack the Bible by suggesting that the Bible is only good to tell you how to get to heaven, and that's about it. When the pressure's really on, don't go to God's word. Don't go to God's people. Go to the experts, people who used to be named Bert, and they changed their name. Experts. Anyway, depression didn't keep Paul from the great task of winning souls. Even though he despaired of life, he kept at it. Satan often uses depression on the mind to keep the mind on ourselves and not on the mission, not on God. And that we get tangled up with that. Uh, you, you know, feeling sad and afraid and depressed, these things come with life, and we also, what comes with it is overcoming them. And this is a perishing world, and we are supposed to be here to tell people they are perishing and be prepared to do that. Here's my uh, my. Great point on this, as I mentioned, 
Depression did not keep Paul from preaching the gospel. Depression did not keep David from writing psalms. At this time in his life, when everybody's trading on him and he has nowhere to go, he writes Psalm 54. There's another psalm come from this man's heart. The Bible is saying, this is how you handle the hardship. You don't, your long suffering is, it comes with it, but you keep moving up. I think the Bible is qualified to address depression. I don't want the world telling me about it because they're going to tell me how to be depressed. I'm telling you the truth. And if, if when people don't agree with me on this kind of thing, I struggle internally. <laughs> oh, that came together nicely. Verse 20. Now, therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down. And let me reread that. And now, therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down. And our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. Um, it is... Again, David is going to be Saul's successor. Saul will not have that. It gets kind of old. It doesn't change anything. Verse 21. Then Saul said, Blessed are you of Yahweh, for you have compassion on me. See the narcissist, the self-centeredness. It's all about meanness. This is why he's insane. It's the same thing that happened with Nebuchadnezzar. He went insane with this, this beautiful Babylon I built. I did this. I, it's all me. This stuff will drive you nuts. What does the scripture say about casting your care on the Lord and he shall exalt you in due time? Redirect. Struggle through it in prayer. And in fact, you'll get sick of, <laughs> you get sick of it after a while. Move on to other things. My knees hurt. I got to get up. This is the voice of the devil, one who is insane with himself. It is not the Yahweh of Moses and the Yahweh of Joshua and the Yahweh of Samuel when he says, Blessed are you of Yahweh. It's not the Yahweh of those men. This is Saul's Yahweh. And there are people that do this with Jesus. What Jesus Christ are you talking about? This Kingdom Hall stuff. The Mormons, are you, going to, are you prepared to say that's the same Jesus from the New Testament? No, there's no way. Malachi writes, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says Yahweh of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? They were delusional too. They're running around dropping the Yahweh name while they trample his word. Matthew chapter 7, we all know this one because we all shake a little bit when we hear it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven, he goes on to add. Luke chapter 6, verse 46, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? This is Saul. Blessed is Yahweh for showing me where I can kill David. And it's always about him. And then he says, uh, for you've had compassion on me. It's all again, it's about him. Does it not vex you to read this? Does it you're like, oh, I don't like this guy. He is the guy. I would put a thumbtack on his chair. <laughs> He's pathetic. Nothing redeeming about him. There's not one quality we come across and say, well, you've got to admit, Saul was at least what? 
Verse 22. Please go and find out for sure. <laughs> he's like, look, I'm getting excited, he's saying. I'm getting excited at the thought of killing David. Please be sure. I don't want you getting my hopes up, and I don't get to murder him. Please be. Verse 22. Please go and find out for sure, and see the place where his hideout is, and who has seen him there, for I am told he's very crafty. <laughs> Why? Because he's trying to survive. All of a sudden, he's this sinister, crafty guy. Uh, David may be crafty, but you're evil. Verse 23, see therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty. And I will go with you and it shall be, if he is in the land, that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah and scratch his eyes out. He's just crazy. You can see him drooling. I mean, where somebody captured all of this. They're like, man, this guy is out there. Uh, don't let, don't make eye contact with Saul. Because if he sees that you know he's crazy, he's going to throw something at you. Uh, how could you not hear this and not be disgusted? He is going to die a fool's death. Uh, anyway, verse 24. So they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the plain on the south of Jeshimon. We all know where that is. We, we go there all the time. It's right by that takeout place. Verse 25. And Saul and his men went to seek him. They told David. Therefore, he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued, pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. This, David's his trek is about a 20 mile radius, 25 miles, all of this from Gath to, he's by the Dead Sea, uh, 60 miles if you count his trek into Moab with his parents. He's just all over the place trying to survive. And verse 26, then Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men were on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul and Saul and his men were encircling David and his men uh, to take them. So the trap is closing. It doesn't look good for David. It looks like this, this might actually be it. That's how David is they're scrambling to survive. And had it not been for the Lord's interference, Saul may have gotten him there. Verse 27. Uh, but a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. What happened again with Keilah? I mean, how come no one came... For them, anyway, I guess maybe it was because Saul had his Porsche parked over there. Uh, he just responded to that. So this was a close call. And Saul returned, verse 28, Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. So they called that place the Rock of Escape, the Rock of Close Call. Uh, verse 29, Then David went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds at En Gedi. And what is left out is what's going on in his head and his heart. It's just how much of this, Lord? I mean, uh, how much of this? And he's going to spend his life. On, you know, there are going to be other times when Absalom comes again. We have so much more about David to go through in his life and to gain for our own lives. Here at En Gedi, again, you can see the Dead Sea from En Gedi. And it, uh, there's a, it's an oasis. It's a beautiful oasis. It's a waterfall there. 
And this is where he's now holding up. Solomon writes about this in the first chapter. He says, my beloved, well, I have a different take than many people on the Song of Solomon, since we still have an hour left. Um, The Song of Solomon is about Solomon the king who wants to take advantage of yet another lass, another young woman. But she's not having it. She's in love with a shepherd. And she, her love is strong enough to tell the king, nope. And that's the story of the Song of Solomon. And probably Abishag, the Shulamite, that kept David warm when he was old. Uh, but at least he uses her as his character. And I believe it may have been a play that was acted out, and the song accompanied it. Uh, this is, uh, it, otherwise, the, song does, the, the whole song does not make sense. It just falls apart. When, how can Solomon, you know, you're trying to scramble to make it work. So... When she tells, the king invites her to this banquet, his banquet table, and he's trying to seduce her into loving him back, or at least, you know, aren't you thrilled? Look how much I own. She's not having it. She says, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of En I love someone, and that person is outstanding, like a Hannah Bloom in a, uh, at En Gedi. And it's a, sort of a link to David and his struggles and the oasis there. It's all, you know, you, as a Jew at that time when Solomon wrote that, you couldn't think of En Gedi without thinking David. Do, do any of you think of En Gedi without thinking of David? I mean, you don't think of like Donald or, <laughs> or anybody else with another name. You didn't care for that one. So uh, there's David went up there to this oasis in Getty, which is very beautiful, but he's not going to be able to stay there either. So now what? More survival. That's what. Let's pray. Our Father, to be able to face hardship, to be long-suffering in the midst of it, and not to be bitter is a work of your spirit in our hearts. And may we be sensitive enough to recognize when others around us are going through very difficult times and to be sensitive to your leading, to know how to minister or withhold uh, any misguided assistance that we would probably put forward in our own strength. May we learn to be led by you in good times and bad times. And may we appreciate good friends and may we be a good friend. May you get us all home safely tonight, Lord. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.